Good morning, everybody. I'm Mark Finn. I'm the associate pastor here at First West, and I'm excited to get to break open the word for you today. And to keep with the theme that we kind of kicked it off with early on here, uh, I, I've got a lot to be thankful for. I hope that you have experienced an incredible Thanksgiving, and, and not just for the, uh, the food factor that, that, uh, that it's so much known for, but, but the reality of what we ought to be giving thanks for, so, so many things. One of the things, um, I'm just grateful to our church family, man. I love all you guys. It's, a, it's an honor to be here and to be able to serve with you and, um, and make a difference in the kingdom here with you. Uh, I am thrilled that with our Adopt-A-Family ministry that we take on this time of year, we've had 23 families uh, that, that we have for adoption. 15 out of those 23 were adopted last Sunday, so great job on that. When I came by the tree just a little while ago, there were like four left, and so Man, thank you for that and being generous and on your way out. If you, you're one of the first four families, now don't run, don't knock anybody over or anything like that, but um, there are a few more. We want to take care of everybody, so thank you so much for, for being generous and caring. We are in this sermon series uh, from the book of John, His Words, His Ways, and looking at things that, that Jesus said, specifically I am statements that Jesus said. And this setting for John chapter 14, which is where we'll be today, you kind of have to look in John 13 to understand. And so let me set that up for you. In just a few minutes, we're going to read from John 14, 1 through 7. But understand that this is happening in the setting of what we know as the Last Supper. Now, the disciples didn't know it was the Last Supper. It wasn't called the Last Supper. They didn't get an invitation and said, hey, y'all, everybody show up in this upper room for the Last Supper. Now, we named it that later on because it became obvious that, that what was going on there. Jesus completely knew the situation, and he was in total control. More importantly, he knew exactly who he was. And in 13.3, it says that Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and he was going back to God. Jesus knew this. The disciples did not understand this. They didn't grasp it. So through 13, through this Last Supper, he washes the disciples' feet, models servanthood for them. He predicts that Judas would betray him. He gave them this new command in verses 34 and 35 to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples by, by your love. He predicted that Peter would deny him. And uh, Peter tells Jesus, he says, hey, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied in verse 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So you can see it is a heavy, emotionally charged scene that's going on. And that brings us to our passage today. I want to invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this 
incredible passage of scripture, this, this truth, Lord, this revelation of who Jesus is as the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, as we grab hold of it, I pray that we'd be able to see where we stand exactly with, with, in relation to you through your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to know where we are with you. Lord, help us to be able to proclaim that we recognize that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that we would bend our lives to that truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you're being seated, I just want to say that um, it's often that this passage is used by those of us that preach funerals in funeral services. Well, why is that? Well, like this scene is a heavy, emotionally charged scene. Funerals are heavy, emotional experiences. But when we're at a funeral for a believer in Jesus, we can confidently encourage the family and friends that while they're grieving, which is perfectly normal and expected, not to let their hearts, which the word heart here refers to really the mind, the will, the emotions, that inner being of who we are, mind, will, and emotions, not to let their hearts be troubled, overwhelmed with the grief that they're naturally feeling because there is hope. Verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. And I get the, you get the idea, if you, if you got the King James Version, it may say, in many, many mansions. And that sounds really cool to think, you know, hey, man, yeah, once, if I'm a believer in Jesus, when I die, I'm going to have a mansion, and you're going to have a mansion, and we're going to have a mansion. I don't know how big mine's going to be versus yours. Yours are going to be way bigger than mine. Mine's probably going to be way bigger than that dude's over there. You know, we get these things in our mind. Really, the better translation is rooms. Think about it almost like, like a boarding house, okay, but a really good one. A really nice, cool one. And, and we all get our own room in this boarding house. It's the Father's house, and you have this room that is for you. That's the idea here. And so he's given hope that the Lord, and what we see in that funeral setting for a believer is that the Lord's kept his promise, and he's received that person to himself. And that's an eternal condition that is so indescribably better than the best day we experience here, this side of heaven. That's the hope. In verse 3, furthermore, He's coming again for all believers. That's a, a reference to the second coming. Jesus will return. Casey talked about that. Got us thinking, man, yeah, we know that the signs of the times are that we're a lot closer to that time than ever before. Don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but we're moving that way. But Jesus is going to come back. So there's this promise of a reunion of all believers, past and present. And that's great encouragement to a family of believers knowing that the one that they love is with Jesus and they're going to be reunited. I mean, that, that's just, that's exciting. And so this is the assurance that Jesus wanted his disciples to have in that moment and, and moving forward, especially in light of what he knew was coming beginning that very night. So in verse 4, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, you, you can sense the anxiety and concern in Thomas's response. And, and Jesus gives a clear, focused response to Thomas. Now, if, if you've been in a situation where you didn't know where you were going, you know that there's a little bit of anxious, a little anxiety there. You, you want to know. You want to have a plan. Uh, you you want to have some confidence about it. Well, Jesus wanted to provide that, and so he does. And this is the main idea for today. And we're going to focus the rest of the time on verse 6. The main idea that we want to understand today is that Jesus provides exclusive direction for our lives. Jesus provides exclusive direction for our lives. That word exclusive is very important. We're going to hammer down on that in, in just a little bit. The first point we see is that Jesus is the way. 
the way to what? To the Father. If you get where you're going, think with me. Where are you going to be when you get there? If you get where you're going, where are you going to wind up? The situation right here is that there is a destination in mind. It is the Father, God Almighty, a reference to heaven. That's the aim here. That's where they're going. And so, so knowing that Jesus is the way to the Father, he says, I am the way, the, in English grammar. Wake up, English teachers out there. I'm here for you today. That is known as a definite article. The is a definite article. It is exclusive. It doesn't say a way, not one possible way, not one of many ways. He is the way. Jesus is the way. Remember that Christians or the movement that we know as Christianity in the early was called the way. Look at Acts 9 and following there. The, the believers in Jesus were referred to as the way. Curious, isn't it? And so it's been become popular uh, in more recent years to say that there are many ways to God or to heaven. There are those that view following Jesus as being too restrictive and small-minded and narrow. I think we've all been in situations where we weren't sure of the direction that we should go or how to get there. So when that happens, you've got a couple options, don't you? You can let this group of unsure people who don't have confidence all give their opinions uh, on, and on what direction you ought to go and then kind of everybody collectively vote on the one you want to try. And maybe it's the person with the loudest voice or the person that, that comes off as being the most confident that wins out any way you go. It's risky. It, it doesn't give you full confidence. Well, Jesus knows that the disciples are going to be vulnerable. He knows that they're going to face so many things and challenges and, and attack. He knows that. And so he wants to eliminate any potential confusion. He says, I am the way. That's significant. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other substitute. No other name can be the subject of that sentence. That's not narrow-minded. It's accurate. It's just the truth. Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. This broad gate, narrow gate idea ought to be helpful to us to understand that when we look at our culture, we look at the world, we look at the people that we know, even ones we know well, we recognize that there are a whole lot of folks that are going in a direction that is not best. It's not healthy for them. And it seems to be that the tide of popular opinion is, hey, man, we're just going to go do whatever you want to do the way you want to do it, and that's your business, and then that's just the flow. But for those that choose to follow Jesus, you need to understand that you are not going to be going the popular way. You high school students are like, no, duh. <laughs> we, we, we deal with it. We walk through it every, every day. No, no kidding, right? It is a narrow way, but it's the right way. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. We get things in our mind that we want to do, directions that we want to go. And it, and it seems right. And when you're just dependent on your feelings or your preferences, your wishes, your desires, you're in a very vulnerable situation. Know that the end of that is death. But when your heart is tuned towards the Lord as the way, you're going in the right direction. Let me give you an example of how exclusive 
it can be to go in the right direction and why it's okay that it's exclusive. Let's just say that your destination, our collective destination, is Dallas. Okay, so you, you get out of here on I-20 and you go east and you start going. Your plan's to go to Dallas, but you start seeing signs for Vicksburg, Jackson, Alabama. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what your preference is. It doesn't matter what you desire or how you'd like things to be. You are still going east, and going east on I-20 will not get you to Dallas. Y'all can write that down, by the way. Now, that's, not a, that's not a real significant spiritual point, but it's exclusive, and it's true. So there are some elements of exclusivity that we will subscribe to. That's just true. You cannot go east and get there. Ephesians 4. 4 through 6 says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in all you go out to the baseball field maybe out to beating horn or wherever you the little ones are playing ball all of us have seen this this scene happen all right just imagine this though you're playing baseball and you smash one, I mean mash it to the outfield fence. And, and it's, it's time to take off. And all of a sudden, you decide that you want to try something you always thought would be a really cool idea. You decide that rather than running the bases counterclockwise, you want to run them clockwise. Some of y'all are confused. What do clocks have to do with baseball? That means you decided that you wanted to run to third, then second, then first before you came home, rather than the normal way, first, second, third. That sounds fun, doesn't it? It's a creative approach. Man, we've all seen t-ball kids take off the wrong way, and you've got to fix it and correct them and everything like that, because it doesn't matter. Even though it's cute and it's t-ball, the, the, the ump still won't let them score a run going the wrong direction. You've got to go. The problem here is that the rules of baseball say that there is an exclusive way to run the bases that leads to a score. Your opinion and creativity, they're not recognized. They're invalid. Jesus is the way to the Father, period. Now, for us that are believers, if there is the way, definite, exclusive, and you're convinced of that, then it's really overwhelmingly unkind and uncaring of us to not stand firmly on that, especially in the face of opposition. I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm not talking about being argumentative just for the sake of getting a big argument, trying to win an argument against people that think differently than you do. I'm talking about caring about that person, realizing that they were made for eternity. And the only way that they can have an eternity that is a good outcome is that they have Jesus, that they receive Jesus. All the other ways, all the other ideas, all the other opinions while it may sound good to go along to get along, and man, hey, whatever you believe is cool, that's not helpful, it's not kind, because it's not truth. Jesus is the way. Second point, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth, 14.6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth, that's an interesting word. It's a significant concept. It's become popular today to put the word my in front of truth. People talk about my truth as if, as if their truth is something different than everybody else's. It's, it's, you've got something exclusive to you. When you're talking about beliefs and you declare your belief and the person you're talking with says, well, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. My truth is fill in the blank. 
red flags should just go up in your mind. The warning sounds, the sirens ought to be happening in your mind right there. It's fair to say my experience, because we've all got different experiences, but we don't get to create our own truth. We don't get to create truth to suit our wants and preferences and desires. St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on if you're British, um, famous theologian, said all truth is God's truth. He was talking about everything out there. Confidence in God, truth, the Bible, science, the ultimate alignment of inquiry and discovery, all of those things. If it's true, it's God's truth. Back in John chapter 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, how is that possible? Here it is. Only Jesus can give us freedom from the bondage of sin. Only he was able to pay the debt that we rightfully owed. Only Jesus. All truth claims are not valid. Just because you believe something or you want something to be true, if it can't stand the test of truth, then it's not valid. So Jesus, later on in John chapter 18, he's in front of Pontius Pilate. He's been brought there by the Jews. And they're trying to make sure that get Pontius to, to be the one that executes a judgment on Jesus so they can carry out their agenda, their plan. So here's the encounter. You're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. Now in this scene, Pilate appeared to be in control. He appeared to be the one in a position of power. He probably felt like he was in control. He probably felt like his truth was, was solid, but he obviously had a subjective view of truth. He knew that the, the Jews had, had their idea, their truth was that Jesus was guilty. His truth believed him to be innocent. He knew they had an agenda. And so he asked, what is truth? Now, now get the irony of this situation here. Pontius Pilate asked, what is truth to the truth? Jesus is standing in front of him. The truth is standing right in front of him. And he viewed Jesus as being a captive on trial in front of him. But the truth was that Pontius Pilate was the one that was the captive. He was the, in bondage to sin and to unbelief. And only Jesus could set him free. Now, in contrast to subjective truth or relative truth that Pontius Pilate was dealing with, Jesus represents absolute truth. Josh McDowell defined absolute truth as that which is true for all people, for all times, for all places. Absolute truth is questioned today by skeptics. Can we really believe that anything is absolutely true? When they say, I don't believe in absolute truth, well, ask them if they believe that absolutely. They're not being honest. And I can prove that we all believe in some absolute truth in different areas. I'm holding right here my keys, my set of keys. Got all kind of keys on there. House keys, truck keys, my wife's vehicle keys, keys to the church. And there are keys to the church on here I probably have for 30 years. I don't even know if they open doors and stuff like that anymore. 
I got my keys right here. Now, let me ask you something. If I drop these keys, are they going to fall up or fall down? Fall down? Really? You believe that? Well, look at that. You're right. Okay, hey, let me just pick them up. All right, if I drop them again, are they going to fall up or fall down? Y'all are really kind of narrow-minded people, don't you think? I mean, really? Don't you think that it's possible that if I, if I drop them that they could fall up? What's the odds that if I drop these keys right here where we are in this setting, in this scenario, that at some point that they will fly up? Anybody? Is there any potential at all? Apparently, y'all are not aware of things like statistics and probability and things like that. Doesn't it make sense that at some point along the way, if you dropped them enough times that they would fall up? No. Why? Because it's absolutely true that right here where we are, that gravity will bring this object down. So there is absolute truth. Anybody got some keys on them down here? You got a set of keys? Anybody got a set of keys with them? Help me out here, Garrett. All right, I'm going to take a real chance here. I don't know what the rules are anymore than that. We got this whole new stage and stuff like that. If I stepped on out this way here. All right, Garrett, just for, for grins here. You can go ahead and sit down. You can talk, talk, talk out loud to me here. Um, let's just say that I want to take your keys, and I'm going to go out to my truck, and I'm going to try to use your key to start my truck. What do you think the odds of that happening are? Not good. All right. Um, which one of these is your house key? Uh, I'm guessing that one. this house key. All right. Let's just say that I take um, your house key and I go to my house and I try to unlock my door. What do you think the odds of that happening are? Still not good. Still not good. Don't you feel like that's a little small-minded? I mean, it is a house key. You got a house key. I got a house key. Shouldn't your house key work for my house? I mean, it's a house key. Are you glad that your house key doesn't work on my house? And more importantly, that my house key doesn't work on your house? You see the point? What would happen if everything worked like that? If everything was okay? If there was no, if there was no rules? If there was no exclusivity here? Then anybody can go in anybody's house. Anybody can get in anybody's vehicle and take off. It would be chaos. So why would we think that Almighty God would be bound to provide multiple ways, however anybody thinks or feels, in order to be able to get to spend eternity with him? Completely ludicrous. Now I'm going to do my best to get back up here. One day there's going to be some smaller steps here, and uh, it's going to be easier for older guys like me. So we do believe in some absolutes, don't we? We do believe in some absolute truth. So why wouldn't we believe in absolute truth when it comes to the most important decision that we could ever make? The ultimate reality that Jesus is the truth. Third thing, Jesus is the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the life. Evan talked about that last week from John chapter 11, where Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. We looked at how death is the greatest enemy, but Jesus has overcome it. Real life is found in Jesus. John 1, 1, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus, that's where the life comes from. He is life. John 3, 36 says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. You can either have Jesus and have eternal life or not have Jesus and have God's wrath. Those are the only two options. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So right here, right now, for believers in Jesus, we get to experience abundant life. That has nothing to do with our, our bank account or our 401k or what's in our driveway or the neighborhood that we live in or how big our house has nothing to do with that as far as abundance. It means that we have all of his presence that we need. We have all of him in us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit indwells us when we receive Jesus. And that means that we have things in us, fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things, they represent life that only Jesus can give. Back to what we read earlier from 1 John 5, 9. Listen to this. Here's what God, if we accept human testimony... God's testimony is greater because it's God's testimony that he has given about his son. In other words, in this situation here, Jesus, he isn't just winging it. He isn't just bebopping along and going, man, this thing is not going the right direction. It's not feeling really good right here. I wonder what's going to happen next. No, God had a testimony that he's given about his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. That's us. Those of us that have said yes to Jesus and choose to live life his way, we have have received forgiveness of our sin. We need to know that we have this, this testimony within ourselves. The Holy Spirit is in us. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given us about his Son. And this, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. It's very exclusive. It's very specific. It's not unloving. It's not unkind. It's accurate. It's just truth. And he says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We've read it from John 20 earlier, uh, most every week. Why did John write? Why did he give all these things? So that you may know that you have eternal life. And 1 John, why did he write? So that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to understand that his son, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. That He's the only way to get to him. He wants you to get to him. So you've got to go through Jesus. That's, That's what it gets right down to. God's love is that great for us. It is that important, it's that significant that he wants us to be united with him so badly that he provided the only way that it could possibly happen for us as sinful people to be in the presence of a holy and pure God was that a sacrifice was made whose blood covered our sin. Jesus was the provision for that. Only Jesus 
life is a precious thing. It's a gift from God. We do all kinds of things to make the life that we're living as good as it can possibly be. Even knowing that these physical lives, we all know that we're not going to be here forever. These bodies are not made to last forever. They're just not. Since sin entered the world in Genesis 3, one of the consequences is a limited lifespan in bodies like these that are subject to limitations like disease and aging. Now, we have incredible capabilities these days to keep these bodies going until they can't anymore. We have instruments to measure, monitor how much physical life is in us by measuring heart rate and respiration and brain activity. And while a medical doctor or a healthcare professional can, can, can gauge and can verify your physical life, they're not qualified to verify your spiritual life, your eternal life. See, we weren't made for just here and now. That's the good news. We weren't made just for now. We were made for eternity. You don't measure eternity with medical instruments. The qualification for that is completely dependent, completely dependent, exclusively dependent on whether you've received Jesus. That means you believe in him, that he is who he claimed to be. You commit your life to living his way, repenting from your sin, turning from doing life your own way, and responding to his call on your life. He wants you. He wants you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to be with him forever. That's his desire. He calls the calls you and so when you receive him you accept what he's already done for you jesus accomplished it on the cross you acknowledge it you can't do it yourself and he lives in you through the holy spirit you have jesus so you have life life here and now abundantly and life eternal acts 4 12 says there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved no other name it's exclusive. Jesus provides exclusive direction for our lives. I want you to think about this. None of the other world religions or philosophies provide a specific, definitive way to have eternal life. None of them. None of the other world religions have a Savior who conquered sin, death, and the grave on behalf of those that believe in Him. Nobody. None of the other world religions can point to an empty tomb. Not a single one. There are places where the, the main people that are recognized as being the, the face of these different you know, belief systems, where they're buried, none of them have an empty tomb. There's only one. None of the other world religions can point to one who sacrifices life so that we can have life, abundant and eternal. Why? Because only Jesus has done that. Only Jesus. He loves you that much. That's Jesus. He's exclusive. And I want you to hear that it's not mean. It's not small-minded. It's not intolerant if you stand firmly on that truth. In fact, it's essential that you stand on that truth. And look at you students, because you guys, you, I don't know, man, I just, my heart's for you. I, I feel it for you because I know that you hear more garbage more garbage from people just grab stuff from all over the place man we're all inundated with it but especially our young people those of you in universities you need to know that if you believe what i'm telling you to believe today that jesus is exclusive you will be marked as ridiculous as ignorant as small-minded even by some of the smartest people allegedly in these institutions you will not find many of them that will say, that have the courage to say, or have the knowledge to say that there's only one way to eternal life. But it's true. It's true. 
So the question is, are we going to give way? Are we going to cave to popular opinion so that we'll be better thought of by people who are confused themselves? Or will we, out of love, stand firmly on the truth that Jesus, and only Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life? Do that from a point of confidence, not of arrogance, because you don't deserve it, neither do I. Do it because out of humility you recognize that what you couldn't do for yourself was done by the only one who could possibly do it. Being exclusive would be saying, he did it for me, but he didn't do it for you. He didn't do it for y'all that act like this, or y'all that grew up over here, or y'all that think these things, or y'all that have this kind of a past. He didn't do it for you kind of folks. He did it for folks like me. No, no, that, that would be exclusive, and that'd be wrong. That's ignorance. The truth is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world. And we have truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can stand on him, and we can share that truth in love and be confident about who we know because he changed everything. I want to ask that you bow with me right now in this moment. And I want you to consider your situation yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus, then right now the, the posture of your heart ought to be thanksgiving. It ought to be confidence knowing that, that you have staked your faith, you have staked your life, you staked your very eternity on the truth. And it rests in him. And you know it wasn't because of you. And so right now, the posture ought to be, God, thank you so much for saving me. Now help me to have the courage to share this truth with others that don't know it. But if you have to be honest right now and say that your situation, the reality that you are experiencing, the accurate description of you is that you do not have Jesus in your life. You've not received Jesus. You've not been willing to turn from your own way and turn toward him. But you know today that you need to do that, then I want to invite you to do just that, to say yes to Jesus. How do we do that? no magic formula. It's really just a life decision that you make, but you make it with your whole heart. And just to kind of nail it down in the quietness of this moment, your heart to God's heart, I think just a confession that sounds like this, God, I realize that you love me. I don't know everything that means, but I know you love me enough to send your son Jesus to save me from my sin because I couldn't do it myself. I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you. And so I'm asking you to forgive me, to come into my life, to take control. I choose to turn from my way and turn toward you. And I want you because I want life. And so today I am yours. I receive what you are offering, an abundant life and an eternal life. Now help me know what to do next because I mean this with all my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look right here. If you prayed that second prayer right there and your heart's desire is that you meant it, then you need to do something about that. Wouldn't do anything to embarrass you or call you out, but in just a moment, here's what's going to happen. All of us in this room are going to stand up and we're going to have some music played. And we're going to have some friends down here, some pastors and staff and other folks that are able to help you to hear that your decision and help you maybe answer a question for you, but for you to tell them 
that, hey, I've made that decision. Now what do I do? The reason that we're going to do that this way, again, you're not going to have to say a thing to the big crowd right here. I know there's a bunch of us. You come and talk to one particular person who is here for you. Don't worry about the people around you. They're happy to move out of the way while you come and do that. But you need to know that Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus didn't call people to a public following, a, a, a private following of him. He called them to publicly follow him, to give their life and be unmistakable about who their leader is, who they're following. That's what Jesus did, and so that's what I'm asking us to do in accordance with who he is and with his word is for you to tell somebody, and then they're going to help you get connected with how you grow in this new life. That's what I'm asking. Everybody understand that? I want to invite you to stand. We've got leaders up here at the front. If you said yes to Jesus and you know you did, then I need you to come tell somebody. If you want more information about that, then come and tell, and we'll help you get connected as you hear this song. Believers worship right now.